John chapter 12, verses 1 through 8. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus was, the one Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha was serving them, and Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table with him. Then Mary took a pound of perfume, pure and expensive nard, anointed Jesus' feet, and wiped his feet with her hair. So the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Then one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was about to betray him, said, why wasn't this perfume sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He didn't say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. He was in charge of the money bag and would steal part of what was put in it. Jesus answered, leave her alone. She has kept it for the day of my burial. For you always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. Have you guys ever seen, I, I should say it this way, what is like the most beautiful thing that you've ever seen? Have you ever seen something that has like radically changed your perspective on life? Um, a few years ago, Kelly and I had an opportunity to go to the Swiss Alps. We got to go to Switzerland for a wedding. And afterwards, uh, the entire wedding party got, after the wedding, the next day, we all got on this thing called an ice train. And it's like this five-hour train ride through the Swiss Alps up to Zermatt. Um, and I mean, it's like, they call it the ice train because it's floor-to-ceiling windows. And you're traveling through the Alps. It's like insane. Uh, one of the things that you realize is that the, the thing that inspired Walt Disney to, to create like the fairy tale idea world that when we think of fairy tales with the big mountains and the castles and the cute little villages, that is Switzerland. Like he was basically just showing us Switzerland. And when you're on this train ride, it's like you look out the window and you see like this beautiful mountainside with a waterfall. And you're like, that's the most incredible thing I've ever seen in my life. And then five minutes later, it's like a village with a waterfall on the mountainside. You're like, that's the most incredible. And then it's like a castle with, it's just like over and over and over again moments where you're like, this is incredible. Um, we got up to Zermatt and Zermatt is like this tiny little village. There's nothing around it but mountains. And it sits in the shadows of the real Matterhorn. And the Matterhorn is insane. It's like, it just, it seems like it defies gravity. Like it's just this like finger pointing up, piercing the sky and like pointing to its creator or something. It's unbelievable to see it in person. Honestly, the only disappointing thing about the entire trip is that there's there's no ride inside the Matterhorn, which was such a bust. What is the most beautiful thing you've ever seen? Is it the birth of a newborn baby? Is it seeing your spouse's eyes as they, you know, turn the corner down the uh, aisle on your wedding day? Is it a well-crafted El Pastor taco? If you know, you know. Have you ever seen anything that just like utterly changed your life? For Mary, it was a Middle Eastern carpenter from like a backcountry village. It was her Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. There was something about Jesus that caused Mary to surrender everything she had 
and everything she was to God. And what was it about Jesus that erupted this kind of adoration from her? She saw how he loves us. And that's what we're going to explore today in uh, John chapter 12. Let's pray real quick, and then we'll get started. Heavenly Father, it would be so wonderful to see what Mary saw, to understand who you are and how you love us. And so I pray that you would um, empower this time through the Holy Spirit. Open her eyes that we might see what Mary saw, that we would come to a place and, and go, well, yeah, that's how you should react to the love of Christ. Use me, Lord, um, and soften our hearts now. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's revisit John chapter 12, uh, verses one and two. Here's what it says. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus was, the one Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha was serving them and Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table. Okay, so the first thing that we have to, um, we have to realize is that, is that this is happening between the resurrection of Lazarus and the death of Jesus. And what it tells us, it happens six days before Passover. So they're like days away from Jesus dying. And um, there's been, you know, as you would recall, they call, La they call Jesus because Lazarus is dead. He shows up and Mary and Martha there and they're weeping. And then Jesus performs this incredible miracle by raising Lazarus from the dead. Mary and others go off and tell everybody what happened. And at this point in time, even though we're six days before the, the cross, uh, the plot to kill Jesus has begun. Like while they're in this little room meeting, having a feast, celebrating the work of Jesus, out there the Pharisees are planning how to get him. And moments later in the text that we're not reading, of course, we see Judas leave the room to go turn Jesus in. And you might think to yourself, or maybe I don't know, this is the way I think. I'm like, why, why would the Pharisees care so much about Jesus resurrecting someone from the dead? Like, that seems like something everyone would be like super stoked on. Like, dude, this dude could bring your loved ones back from the dead. What, what, are, you, what are you worried about, you know? I think it's important to recognize that the miracles, specifically the seven miracles that John talks about in his gospel, they weren't just like random miracles that Jesus was doing. They were prophetic symbols that affirmed that Jesus was who he said he was, which was God incarnate. And so if you think about like the very first miracle that Jesus performed, turning water into wine, doesn't seem like that big of a deal. Like everyone's going to be, you know, inviting Jesus to their next wedding. He's like the guy you want to have. But think about this. It was God in Egypt when he wanted to free his people that turned the Nile River water into blood. That was the first 
plague. It was a curse. And so Jesus turning water into wine is a sort of reversing of the curse, and it is preparing a way for a new covenant to come about in which God was going to relate to his people differently. And then think of the last curse in the plague of Egypt. It is the firstborn boy who would die. And now think of Lazarus. He is resurrecting Lazarus, who appears to be the firstborn boy of his family. And so it is this reversing of the curse. It was God, Jesus, declaring that he was God over life and over death and that he had come to be the savior that the people were longing for. He claimed that he was the Lord of lords and the King of kings who had come to bring about a new covenant and a new kingdom to save his people. And that was a threat to the Pharisees because the Pharisees, mind you, like they have a monopoly on religion in the area and they have a right standing relationship with the political authorities in the neighborhood. So for Jesus to come about and say, I am God, it was threatening the religious and political power that the Pharisees had for themselves. So yeah, they're not stoked about these uh, miracles that he's performing. And in this text, we've got Jesus. He's having a kickback with his disciples. If you hung out in the 90s, you know what a kickback is. He's got Simon the leper with him, Mary, Martha, and of course, the resurrected Jesus. And it's this scene where Mary does something amazing. Look at verse three with me. Then Mary took a pound of perfume, pure and expensive nard, anointed Jesus's feet and wiped his feet with her hair. So the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. There are three significant things about this act that Mary does. The first is that it was a surrender of her comfort. You have to remember that perfume, like when we talk about perfume, you know, we, we've got perfume everywhere, right? Like you walk into a store and there's like rows and rows of perfume. There's people like spraying perfume on you for free. You can buy perfume for $5, for $10. You can buy perfume probably for a hundred bucks. Matt Bailey's like, who would buy perfume for a hundred dollars? Your wife probably. Let's be real. This is not just like perfume that you randomly find. This is inheritance. It is of great value. And you have to understand that people 2,000 years ago in the Middle East, like, they smelled. I don't mean that in a derogatory way in any way, shape, or form, not talking down about it, but it was literally something that they had to manage in life. Because there was no showers, there was no soap, there was no shampoo, uh, you know, you, you smelled. You were in the desert, you were in the heat, and so you had to be careful about how to manage that. That was a way of life for them. Is In the same way that, like, you and I are just accustomed to having to fill our gas tanks up every now and then. They had to deal with the scent of their bodies, and perfume was a very difficult thing to come by. Perfume was used very rarely. You might use like a dab of perfume on a very special occasion. Or somebody might have used, held onto something like this, and it would have been used on a king once in his life when he was being inaugurated. Or you might use a dab of perfume on a loved one who just passed away. Or 
for, for maybe more middle class, if there was that back in the day, they might save a bottle of this as an inheritance passed down and you would hold on to it because it was what you would use on your wedding day. And that's probably how Mary got this alabaster jar of perfume. It was because she's not rich, which means it was, she was probably inheriting it and she was probably holding on to it for the day she would get married. But the other thing that it is, because of its value, it, one year's worth of, of, uh, of income, it was also sort of like an emergency fund. If famine broke out in the land, or if war broke out and they needed to escape, they would sell this, this bottle of perfume was their life savings. Like they would take this and sell it and that's how Mary, Martha, and Lazarus would survive a tragedy like that. Um, in Mark's account, which is, there's three different accounts of this story. In Mark's account, it says that Mary breaks the jar, which is kind of like saying, she very much intended to use every single last drop on Jesus. She was holding nothing back. She wasn't saving any for an emergency fund. She wasn't saving any for future wedding plans at all. Like everything that she had, she was pouring out on him. There was something about Jesus that meant more to Mary than her own comfort than her own savings account, than her own plans for her future life. Like something she saw in Jesus was like, here is everything that I have. All of my future plans, it is all yours. And this to Mary is an appropriate extravagance. To her, it's the only way you ought to respond to the love of Christ. Makata Fujimori in his book, Art and Faith, um, talks about this as an appropriate extravagance. He says this, when Princess Diana was tragically killed, thousands, perhaps millions of roses filled the streets of London. No one charged that it was an inappropriate extravagance. It was simply a proper way for British people to express their grief. The justification of extravagance, therefore, does not hinge on the amount of money or the number of roses. It has everything to do with the object of our extravagance, the object of our adoration, or the object of our grief. The problem is not that we do not have an extravagant visual culture. The problem is that we do not believe in an extravagant God to the degree that we like Mary, experience the extravagant grace of God, to that degree, we will respond extravagantly back to him. Have you experienced the extravagant grace of God? Have you experienced the extravagant grace of God? Mary was willing to surrender all of her plans all of her financial security, everything she owned for this God. Do you know what she saw? Have you seen it? The other thing that she was willing to surrender was control. Look at uh, verse three. Then Mary took a pound of perfume, pure and expensive nard, anointed Jesus' feet, and wiped his feet with her hair. 
So the house was filled with the fragrance of perfume. Notice that it says anointed his feet and wiped it with her hair. Okay, so for us to understand this, I think the best way is to understand the rights of bond servants. Uh, so 2,000 years ago in the Middle East, you could have a bond servant. Sometimes the scriptures translate that as slave, but it would be foolish for us to compare it to the same kind of slavery that America is guilty for. This is not chattel race-based slave trade. What bond servants were is essentially, well, one, chattel race-based slavery is based in race, and then you, you owned, tragically, this slave to do whatever you wanted with that that person, that image bearer of God. It, it is a sin and it was atrocious. What this is, is, is a type of bond servant. And what would happen is if you got into financial debt, as an example, you would w- willingly enter into a bond servant contract in which you would work off your debt. And once you worked off that debt, you were released from that servitude, if you would. But even when you were a bond servant, you still had rights. Bond servants were your neighbors, your friends. It could even be your family member, and they had rights. Honestly, to be a bond servant in the New Testament was closer to having a mortgage than it was being a slave. Let me explain it like that. Because when I, when I enter into a contract with uh, the, re- the, the banker, I say for the next 30 years, 30% of my income is going to you. And I can remove myself from that by selling it or by paying it off. And so in that sense, these bond servants were in that way, not chattel by slave slave trade. So one of the rights that they had was they wouldn't wash your feet. You can ask a bond servant to to educate your children. You can ask a bond servant to uh, help you with the farmland. But if you asked a bond servant to wash your feet, they wouldn't do it. It was considered... Uh, degrading, and it wouldn't happen. Here's Mary washing the feet of Jesus, making herself less than a servant. She is giving up her rights, leaving control of her life over to God. Which makes us ask the question, like, do we... Does God have control over your life? Because the thing is, is like we all like to talk about God, our savior, God, our comforter, God, our healer, and God, our protector, but God, our Lord, Lord over our lives. It's like we want God to be this like cosmic guide that helps us have a good marriage and well-behaved children, blesses our career, but we still want our rights. It's almost at times we're like, okay, God, I'm gonna give you this portion of, of my plans, this portion of my relationships, this portion of my time, this portion of my energy, but everything else, it belongs to me. Like, I want you to stay in your lane and I need you to bless me and keep me healthy and get out of my way, but ultimately I want control over my life. And Mary's like, no, it all belongs to you. She gives up her rights to her Lord and Savior. And I think it's amazing, as one commentator pointed out, that Mary is constantly being seen at the feet of Jesus. 
In Luke 10, Mary is at his feet learning. In John 11, Lazarus dies and she's at his feet weeping. And then in John 12, she's offering up her rights by cleaning, washing his feet. The third and last thing that she surrenders is her soul, it's her love, her adoration. It says that she she was uh, that her hair was down. Letting your hair down two thousand years ago was grounds for divorce. Um, it was scandalous, not so much because it was an act, a sexual act, but rather it was like a an intimate act that you would do um, when you had an open, loving relationship with somebody. So, like you would let down your hair, you know, in front of your mom and your sisters maybe in front of your dad and your brothers, certainly one day in front of your spouse, but out in public at a kickback, like that's not where you let down your hair. This act of her hair being down for Jesus is a sign of of love, of openness, and of relational intimacy. It's ultimately an act of devotion or adoration to God. Mary has this glimpse of holiness. She's seen the way that God loves, and this is her response. She's like, have all that I have and all that I am. It all belongs to you. And Judas and his disciples, Jesus' disciples, they don't like this. This is like making them uncomfortable. Flip over to Matthew uh, 26, verse 8 and 9, because the way John reads it or, or writes it out, it sounds like it's just Judas who's uh, uh, upset about this, but it's actually the rest of the disciples too. Listen, when the disciples saw it, they were indignant. Why this waste, they asked. This might have been sold for a great deal and given to the poor. That word, indignant, it means to bellow with rage. Like they were raising their voice, probably talking derogatory, talking down to Mary. They thought it was a waste because they didn't understand the extravagance of the one that she was worshiping. They hadn't yet seen or understood the love of God. And I love Jesus's response. Look at, let's look at Mark 14, verses six and nine. He says, leave her alone. Why are you bothering her? She has done a noble thing for me. Okay, just pause for a second. Can you imagine that? Like hearing the voice of God, Jesus himself coming to your defense, lifting up the thing that you did. Leave her alone. Why are you bothering her? She has done a noble thing for me. You always have the poor with you and you can do what is good for them whenever you want, but you do not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body in advance for burial. Truly, I tell you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. I love that last part. Like wherever the gospel is going to be preached, you're going to hear about this. 
And here we are 2,000 years later, different language on the other side of the world, talking about Mary. God kept his promise. Whose voice do you think she heard more that night? The voice of the angry, bellowing disciples that didn't understand the gospel? Or Jesus's? She was satisfied in the satisfaction of Christ. The things that we do as Christians in response to the gospel doesn't always make sense to others. Um, the other day, Cammie was sharing with me the story that she was like talking to a neighbor or a friend, and she was just kind of sharing like some of the stuff that our church family members have been going through and how her and Eric and others of us have come alongside to just love people, just bear each other's burdens, which is something that like every church family does. And I think, I mean, from observing, like you guys do an amazing job of loving one another and bearing each other's burdens. We've, we've gone through some stuff and it's beautiful to see the way uh, our family responds to just loving one another and caring for their needs. And as she's kind of telling the story, um, the person's like, said something like, uh, like, man, why would you, like, why are you doing this stuff for these people? They're not even your family. Like, what is a waste to so many in this world is an act of beautiful devotion before God. Mako goes on to make this observation. He says, the only earthly possession Christ wore on the cross was the very aroma of the perfume Mary poured upon him. The Roman soldiers who crucified Jesus all could smell her perfume. The theology of making is full of the, this aroma of Mary. I'll tell you what that means in a second. Christ called her act of devotion beautiful, echoing the Hebrew root koloss, a word that appears in the original language of Genesis that tells us that God called creation good. What Mary did was good and beautiful. With the disciples deemed a waste, Jesus called the most necessary. Mako talks about this theology of making in which any time that we, um, we, use, we, we have creative expression in the arts, whether it's music, um, film, uh, painting, writing, or even like crafting or making a well-intended meal for friends and family. And then he goes beyond that. He talks about like acts of generosity um, or justice that these things he calls are, are, is an art of making, the theology of making. And he says that it smells of that sweet aroma of Mary. There's, uh, there's two ways that somebody could respond with religious fanaticism or with religious pacifism. And I wanna point out that like Mary's act of sacrifice is not religious fanaticism. A religious fanatic is the kind of person that's like a jerk for Jesus. You know, they're just, they're just rude and disrespectful. And anytime somebody like calls them out, they're like, oh, well, man, I'm just speaking the truth in love. 
You know what I mean? Like they, they have no intention of creating something beautiful and inviting somebody into the beauty of what God has done for them. This, these kind of individuals tend to think that they need to suffer. And that is an act of penance more than it is a response to the gospel. But also you have the religious pacifist which has an aversion to suffering. Like they want God as their cosmic butler, life enhancement, give me a good marriage, obedient children, financial success, a stable community of friends and family members. That all sounds good to me, but the idea of your faith costing you something, they're they're out. That doesn't make sense to them. That would be a religious pacifist. Mary, on the other hand, both, I should say, both the religious fanatic and the religious pacifist do not have an understanding of the gospel. Now, a skeptic might say, well, see, this is like the reason why I'm out on Christianity, man. Like, this woman wasn't even allowed to let down her hair. You've got bond servants, and then Jesus requires my whole life. I think it's important to recognize real quickly that the scriptures are sometimes prescriptive and sometimes descriptive. What I mean by that is that sometimes the scriptures are simply describing the cultural precedence at the time. They're not prescribing it to us. They're not making an excuse for it to be okay. It's simply helping us understand what was happening at that time. And actually, this is the complete opposite of uh, the oppression of women. I read one scholar pointed out that Genesis, the Genesis, that this moment with Mary is the Genesis for women's rights and equality because Jesus is lifting Mary up. He is affirming what she has done. He is getting her back against these guys that are speaking down to her. Over and over and over again, we see him breaking down these cultural barriers, these walls. And others have pointed out that like for us in the West, we believe in some inherent truths, that we are all born uh, with dignity and respect, that we all should be treated equally. But those ideas are not inherently human ideas. Those are distinctly Christian ethics and values that we have adopted from Christianity. Pre-Jesus, like that was not something that you heard. As a matter of fact, Tom Holland says it like this. Tom Holland, the reason why I like to quote him is because he's agnostic, not a Christian, but he's a very respected uh, uh, historian. He says, Christianity gave women a dignity that no previous sexual dispensation had offered. See, God is, Jesus is breaking down these walls and creating equality. And this idea that um, the Christianity would require something of you, that faith would, would require something of you, maybe, maybe you've got it all wrong. What if the true meaning and purpose that you've been looking for in life can only be found at the feet of your Savior? Because here's the reality is that we're actually all bowing at the feet of something. We all submit our lives to the authority of wealth, prosperity, sex, money, power, reputation, our careers. 
Like there is something that our lives are being submitted to. Our lives are at the feet of something. But the difference is that all those other things will continue to demand more and more and more of us and give back less and less and less. But Mary's act at the feet of Jesus is a satisfying sacrifice. It brings her joy. In other words, we need to stop settling for less than the feet of Jesus. It's like what C.S. Lewis said. If you've been with us a while, you know this, this one pops up like at least once a year, either in my sermons or Chris's. It would seem that the, our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea, we are too far too easily pleased. Listen, the power to transform our hearts comes when we see how Christ has loved us. Look back to John chapter 11, verses 45 and 46 real quick. I want you to see what Mary saw. I want you to have the same epiphany that she had. Here's what John 11, 45 and 46 says. Therefore, many of the Jews came to Mary and saw what he did, talking about Jesus resurrecting Lazarus from the dead, saw what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. What happens here is that Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, and then Mary like goes and shares this good news with the people around her. And some of them come to believe that Jesus is who he said he was, but others respond by going and talking to the Pharisees. So Mary realizes that bringing Lazarus back from the dead means the beginning of the end for Jesus. She gets a glimpse that this plan to kill him is starting to happen, and it's happening because of what he did for Lazarus, or at least that's a catalyst of it. She sees the way that he loves. You know, when, um, when Kelly and I were getting married, uh, full transparency, she knows this because we talk about it often, I, like, I'm, I'm an analytical statistics guy, and so I just was like, statistically, like the odds are against us. Um, you know, I come from a, from a broken family. Um, and I spent most of my 20s saying that I didn't want to get married and I didn't want to have kids. I was young and dumb. I'm still one of those things. There you go. Thanks, Matt. <laughs> um, Kelly had... Uh, recently escaped an abusive relationship. When we got married, this is like a lot of information for your first timer. <laughs> we'll get coffee and I'll fill in the blanks later. We got married, had a, we had a two-year-old daughter with us at our wedding day and, um, and Kelly was nine months pregnant. So the odds were like, the odds were against us. This seems like an uphill battle, right? Uh, 
And then to top it all off, my best man was late to the wedding. <laughs> we had to delay the wedding. And then his date, like, hadn't taken a shower in two weeks. <laughs> it's true, isn't it? <laughs> I don't know how you did. They had, flown, they had flown back that day from Africa, uh, and their plane was delayed, and I'm pretty sure she hadn't showered. <laughs> the odds were against us. Uh, but here's the thing. Um, like when Kelly walked down the aisle, well, first she fell, but once she got up and kept walking down the aisle, <laughs> when she was walking down the aisle, like, I just, I saw the way that she loved me. I saw what, that she saw in me, a husband and a father that I didn't know existed. And all of the like analytics and the worry and all of that stuff, like all of that melted away. And it was like, okay, we like, this is good. This is beautiful and it's gonna be okay. And you know, we're going on 12 years now and I'm still dumb, but we're still married. Yeah. You see, Mary saw how Jesus loved. She saw the cost that it took to bring Lazarus back from the dead. She knew that to bring him life meant it would cost Jesus his life. To raise him from the grave would mean Jesus going into the grave. She saw how he loved and she responded with devotion. She gave all that she was and all that she had to him. So the question is, have you seen how he loves, how he has loved you? Because when you do, the only response is to give all that you have and all that you are to him. Thank you for listening to the King's Cross Church Podcast. We'd like to encourage listeners to be part of a local church gathering. If you're ever in the Orange County, California area, we'd love it if you'd come by and visit on a Sunday morning. For meeting times and locations or any other information about us, please visit kx.church. There's no .com in that, just kx.church. Thanks again for listening.